Next, you're going to see what we stand for as the Movement for a People's Party. Here is a video put together where you're going to see what exactly we could have. A 21st century economic bill of rights. Strong unions and workplace democracy. Rebuild and modernize our infrastructure. A fair tax code and thriving small business. Reign in Wall Street and create public banks. Fair trade policies that benefit U.S. workers. Universal basic income and a job guarantee. Abolish money in politics and restore democracy. Free, secure, and transparent elections. Ranked choice voting and proportional representation. Defend civil liberties and end mass surveillance. A wealth tax. Respect human rights, health, and human potential. Medicare for all. Free public college and canceling student debt. A swift pathway to citizenship. Respect disability rights. Protect the environment and defend biodiversity. A Green New Deal. Defend animal rights. Sustainable agriculture. Housing for all. Restorative justice in ending mass incarceration. Legalized marijuana. Racial justice. Equal rights for women. LGBTQIA equality. Honor Indigenous Rights and Treaties. Create a peaceful global community benefiting from technology. End the wars and invest at home.
economists and mitigate the peril of accelerating technology. Taking care of veterans. The People's Party. Welcome back, everyone. Doesn't that look like a much better future? That's what we could have. And the, the only thing standing in the way is us deciding to have that. That is truly the biggest obstacle. Our last three speakers will be Miriam Williamson, Dr. Cornell West, and Senator Nina Turner. And before that, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about how exactly we can form a new party and why exactly we need to do that. We are in the midst of what seems like we live now in a perpetual state of crisis. We have a health crisis, a pandemic sweeping the world and the country. The rest of the world is quarantining the United States, the richest country in the world. How ridiculous is that? We have about 25% of the cases and about 25% of the deaths with only 4% of the population. And why is that? It's because when members of Congress and the White House and the intelligence agencies found out that the pandemic was a serious threat, as far back as November, the intelligence agencies, White House briefings in January, congressional meetings in January and February, and what did members of Congress do? What did our government do? Did they act to prevent it? No. What they did instead is that members of Congress went and they bet on the stock market, on stocks of things like digital meeting technologies. They invested themselves in the catastrophe. They invested themselves in the pandemic being as horrible as it is. They made money off of it. And not one of them has faced consequences, serious consequences. And then what happened? And then after our, gov our government failed to actually prepare for the pandemic, it faced obviously a shortage of masks, personal protective equipment, ventilators. And so what did the government do? It lied to us. It had Dr. Fauci and its other spokespeople and both parties lied to us about the effectiveness of masks while other countries knew and were using masks, the countries that had handled it the best like South Korea were using masks, they told us not to wear them. It took them weeks to reverse their advice. Tens of thousands of people are dead because they told us not to wear masks because they wanted to save them for health professionals. That is a scandal of enormous proportion. It is one of the greatest scandals in our country, certainly one of the greatest health scandals in our country's history because they weren't prepared. 
because they went and they bet on the stock market first instead. What happened after that? They passed the CARES Act, a multi-trillion dollar Wall Street bailout. They just made it up, as, I, as Ice Cube recently put it in a video that he filmed, saying, why should we vote Democrat? So what are they going to give us? What are they going to give us after we vote Trump out? What are we going to get? That, how are we going to improve our lives? They passed the CARES Act. They took that money. They basically made it out of thin air and they gave it to all their Wall Street friends. And then they created a small business program that was supposed to spare us from a small business apocalypse, which happened anyway. About 40% of small businesses are expected to go out of business in the United States. The biggest wave of corporate consolidation in our nation's history. And even that those small business loans got vacuumed up by big chains. Just like the checks, the stimulus checks, the $1,200 first round of stimulus checks that they sent, that was taken up, that debt collectors were allowed to take that money. And so even the things which were superficially supposed to be bailouts for the people, even the crumbs they threw us were things that they could vacuum up. How insulting is that? And they told people, they told small businesses, the big retailers are going to get to stay open, but you have to close. And somehow you have to continue affording your lease. And they told working people, you know what? You're not going to be able to work. You're not going to have a job. But somehow, and we're not going to pay you a basic income. We're not going to pay you, we're not going to pay you anything. We're not going to give you health care, free health care, like the rest of the world enjoys in facing this crisis, the rest of the developed world. But we're, somehow we expect you to survive. You know what? 80% of you were living paycheck to paycheck before this crisis, and we expect you to survive. You know, just figure it out, right? That's not what they told Wall Street. And you know why they haven't passed another, another bailout? You know, they went on vacation. They went on vacation instead of passing another bailout and one for the people. It's because Wall Street doesn't have enough things they want yet because the stock market is soaring now because billionaire wealth has increased by more than $600 billion during the pandemic. While the economy has contracted by about a third. That's why we only get things when Wall Street wants it. It doesn't matter how much the people are suffering. And it's reached levels that I did not think I would see in my lifetime in the United States. We have now one out of every 10 Americans that faces eviction, that faces being thrown out in the streets in the middle of a pandemic, one out of every 10. One out of every three families with children can no longer afford food. This is a failed state. The richest country in the world, a failed state. It cannot provide basic services. The definition of a failed state is a country, a government that becomes incapable of providing for its citizens on a fundamental level, meeting basic human needs. Because of these two corrupt parties, we are now in the throes of a health crisis, a racial justice crisis, after the murders of George Floyd, the paralyzing of Jacob Blake, the murder of Breonna Taylor. When will it end? We've seen an uprising in this country, an uprising of millions of people 
New York Times described the Black Lives Matter movement as the biggest movement in the country's history. Not a word. It didn't budge Congress. In fact, congressional staffers were interviewed afterwards by Politico, and they were asked, is this movement of millions of people, is that going to change policy in Washington? Are there policy plans? You know what they said? No, there are no plans. They, some of them even laughed when the reporters asked. That's the level of callousness we face now in our government. We face an economic crisis, racial justice crisis, a health crisis, a planetary crisis. The, the Western half of the United States is engulfed in wildfires. If we don't fight now, there will be nothing left to fight for. We have to make our stand. That's why everybody has gathered today to form a People's Party. We can do this. In Mexico, in 2014, progressives got tired of trying to reform their two neoliberal parties. You know what they did? They formed a new party. It was a movement for two years from 2012, and in 2014, it became a new party, Morena. Four years later, in just two years ago, four years later in 2018, they elected Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, described as the Bernie Sanders of Mexico, as their president. Just recently, he announced he's legalizing marijuana on top of a whole suite of progressive policies. They took both houses to the national legislature. They took the majority of the governorships and they took the presidency in four years. That's a political revolution. That's what a political revolution looks like. That's the level of system change that we need in this country. That's what we need to bring. The same thing has happened abroad in other countries. In country after country, particularly Latin America and Europe, we are seeing new parties rise and throw out and replace and seriously contest parties that have been dominant since the end of the Second World War. In Spain, Podemos. In Greece, Syriza. In Chile, the country of my parents' birthplace as a first-generation American, Frente Amplio. This is a phenomenon that is sweeping the world. And here in the United States, we need to catch that wave. We cannot be left behind. We have a responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to the rest of the country. We have such an outsized impact on the rest of the country. We impose our, on the rest of the world. We impose our will on the rest of the world. We took over from the United Kingdom, from Britain, as the world's global empire after the Second World War. We inherited that role. As for the corporate parties that we have, Bernie Sanders taught us that you there is no such thing as a candidate or a party, a people's candidate or a people's party that takes corporate money. It's an oxymoron. You cannot serve the Wall Street oligarchs and Wall Street and corporations and the military industrial complex and the prison industrial complex and big oil and big ag and the people.
only by being supported by millions of small dollar donors like the Bernie Sanders campaign can a party be truly independent? Can a party truly represent its people? And that is the ideal to which the movement for a people's party has committed itself. And that is the ideal to which we strive to form the people's party. We can do it. We have advantages that we have never had before as working people. We have the internet. The internet is powering new parties around the world, the ones I spoke of. The fundraising model is small dollar crowdsourced donations. We can do the same, just like Bernie Sanders campaign. We can do the same through small dollar recurring membership donations and membership, paid membership here in the United States. The organizing model of the Bernie Sanders campaign was likewise a model for a new party. It was a distributed organizing program functioning through apps, social media organizing, Facebook groups. We can do likewise. We are doing likewise right now. As much as they don't want our message to get out, as much as they've tried to clamp down on social media and independent news, so many of the hosts that you've heard from today who get the, who, who get the news out despite trying to be scamped out by YouTube, big corporations, they cannot contain our message. We went number two trending today on Twitter. The same thing is true of us being able to get the word out. We can, as I mentioned, circumvent the mainstream media now because we have the internet, because we can communicate peer to peer. We have the ability to get the message across. We're no longer forced to funnel the information that we get from the mainstream media and whatever sources they choose to put in front of us. We now can communicate with each other in a beautiful movement where the people lead what is worth knowing. We're going backwards. Everybody can see it. Everybody knows it. Things are getting worse. They're getting worse with the Democrats and Republicans. Their management of this country is taking us backwards. It is making things worse. In, 20, in 2008, I volunteered for Barack Obama. I worked my heart out for him. I even worked to try to enact cap and trade, like I mentioned earlier to address the climate crisis, even though there were already at the time, there were climate scientists that were saying that's not the optimal solution. We need a carbon tax and we need many other policies that go further. That was the case 12 years ago, but at least he promised them, at least he said them, if that means anything more, rhetorically, rhetorically he understood that at least those things should be said. This is what people want to say. The system now, the Democratic Party, both parties have seized up to such a degree where now we get candidates in the supposed left-wing party of the United States that cannot even promise those things anymore. They cannot even promise things that have 70, 80, 90% popular support among all Americans, like getting money out of politics, tackling the climate crisis, Medicare for all, free public college, ending mass incarceration, legalizing marijuana. 
Joe Biden is not an aberration. Trump is not an aberration. They are the natural consequence of this system's decline and capture by Wall Street and big money. Joe Biden himself told us that nothing will fundamentally change in his administration. He recently had a surrogate of his recently said that in fact, after, after they win, if they do, because they might lose to Trump as a result of how bad they are. But if they win, they will, there will be a return to austerity politics. They said the, the, the kitchen cabinet would be empty. They would have no resources for the people. There's never resources for the people. There's always resources for endless war. You just put that on the national credit card. You just invent the money. And there's never resources for the people. He recently met too with a CEO from Blackstone and held a fundraising teleconference with a number of his big donors. And he told them that there needs to be change in corporate governance in the United States. And he said, but it won't take any policies. I'm not proposing any. No policies. He has told us in as many different ways as he can that he is going to be a continuation of the neoliberal, neo-fascist decline of this country, which has now become a sprint. It's now become a free fall to authoritarianism and oligarchy. And the rest of the world is paying the price with us. We have a responsibility, a solemn responsibility to make good on this wave that is sweeping the world, this revolution that is sweeping the world and to join our sisters and brothers in forming a major new political party that is free of corporate money and influence. Four years from now, I believe that we will be at the People's Convention of 2024 with a presidential candidate poised to win, to defeat both parties like Morena did both corporate funded parties and candidates at all levels to lead the political revolution that we all sought from the beginning. That is our vision. And it is a vision that has never been more real and more necessary than it is today. Thank you. I look forward to the next four years. Next. I would like to remind everyone that the vote is open. The vote to, to build a major new party in the United States. So please head to peoplesconvention.org, download the app if you haven't already, and cast your vote. This is a historic occasion. And with that, it's my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Marianne Williamson. She's an author, spiritual leader, activist, Democratic presidential candidate in 2020. She has written 13 books, including multiple New York Times bestsellers. 
and is a co-founder of the Peace Alliance. Marianne, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's just wonderful to be here. And I want to say that what you have done here, Nick and, and Ryan, is so moving to me. It's really an honor to be in the presence of this much truth telling. There has been more truth telling at this convention, in my opinion, than there was either at the Republican or the Democratic conventions. And it's kind of like in a when people talk about having been raised in an alcoholic home, when children feel like neither mommy nor daddy are really saying the truth of what's going on. And there's all this agitation in the air. That's what I feel is going on in this country. It's like we all know things are going on and they're not being discussed. And that should be the purpose of political parties. They should be containers for truth telling as certain people see it. And this convention has done that. It has opened up a conversation that I think is so important. And I'm so honored that you're uh, allowing me to be part of the conversation here today. It's like a kaleidoscope. Everybody has given their own little piece of it. And everybody has said things that to me contribute to a, to a higher level of truth and understanding in our country. I'd like to begin by um, articulating a context that for me is very helpful in understanding where we are today. Just like when you're a child and you, uh, no, I'm sorry, even when you're an adult, but you go to therapy and in therapy, they ask you about your childhood because the more you understand where you came from, the more you understand your parents' experience, the more you understand where you came from, the more you can understand where you are now and the more empowered you can feel about going forward because you know where you've been. So I think that our looking, taking a good look at the founding of our country, where we started, where we've come to, gives us tremendous power and understanding of where we need to go now. In 1776, 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence declared in founding documents in a way that had never been done in the world, some foundational principles that were revolutionary. They were not only revolutionary politically, they were revolutionary morally, they were revolutionary spiritually, that all men are created equal and that all men have the God-given right to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness that all men should have an opportunity to spread their wings and, and actualize their own God-given potential. And that's where it started, but that's also where it got gnarly. Because out, out of the 56 signers of the declaration, 41 of them were slave owners. That's it right there. That contest and that struggle right there, it is a characterological aspect of the American mind that is bipolar that on one level stands for the most aspirational and enlightened principles that have ever formed the founding of a country. And at the same time, from the very beginning, it has never not been true. And this struggle is encapsulated in our politics today as much as it has ever been at any time, even at the beginning. Because even though there have been people who were willing to sacrifice their lives to take a stand for those enlightened principles, there have been forces. They were with us then and they're with us now, that we're willing to transgress even in the most violent and wicked ways against the principles on which we purport to stand. And every generation in American history, ours no less than any other, has lived out that struggle. Now, the good news is, over time, we tend to self-correct. Americans responded to uh, slavery with abolition, and Americans responded to the institutional suppression of women with the women's suffragette movement. We responded to segregation with the civil rights movement. So over time, as desperately dark and painful 
and it's filled with human suffering as some of the aspects of American history have been. There have been people in every generation that have taken the wheel, had pushed back against the forces that were transgressing against our principles and did what it took to get this country back on track. It is simply our turn. Now, I was a child, but I was old enough to remember Bobby Kennedy taking a stand against the Vietnam War, taking a stand against the military industrial complex. Martin Luther King taking a stand against racial injustice. And there was a sense of hope in those years because we saw people within the political realm, Bobby, Martin, and others who truly represented in political terms the higher aspirational principles of America. They killed them. And everything that we feared would happen with those men's death has come to pass. 1968, they died. In 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected president. And with that came Reaganomics or trickle-down economics. Now, hear me on this. When you have the wicked transgression against the principles on which we stand encapsulated within a, an institution, then it is as though that institution is like an operable tumor. You have slavery, we know what we need to do, abolish slavery. You have the suppression of women, we know what we need to do, give women the right to vote. You have uh, segregation and all of the uh, inter, uh, domestic terrorism against black people that followed for 100 years after the Civil War, we knew what we had to do, pass civil rights legislation and the Voting Rights Act. But what has happened now is something even more insidious because it's not one institution, it's an economic mindset. It's not an operable cancer. It's more like a cancer that has metastasized and has wrapped itself around healthy organs. With what happened in trickle-down economics, led by the guys from University of Chicago, although interestingly enough, the main articulator of trickle-down economics, a man named Milton Friedman, himself said, but none of this will work without a universal basic income. Well, the people who promulgated trickle-down economics left that part out, of course. And they said that the US corporation should have no moral or ethical responsibility to people or to planet. Because you see, before then, the social consensus was that it should. You see, before then, it's not like America was ever all good. But I remember a time when the social consensus was that at least we should try. With trickle-down economics, the idea was that all the responsibility of the corporation was would be the short-term profits for the stockholder class and all other stakeholders, the workers, eh, the, the earth itself, eh, the community, eh, the environment, eh, everything was to accrue to the stockholders. And then they would make so much money that all that money would trickle down and it would lift all boats. After 40 years, we know what happened. It did not lift all boats. As a matter of fact, it left millions of people without even a life vest. It created such a massive transfer of wealth into the hands of 1% as to have completely devastated the middle class in this country. And what it created was a new aristocracy in this country. We have reverted. Just like in 1776, we chose democracy over aristocracy, we have reverted to aristocracy. It is now a corporate aristocracy. It is health insurance companies. It is big pharmaceutical companies. It is big oil. It is food companies. It is chemical companies. It is the National Rifle Association, uh, gun manufacturers. And of course, it is the military industrial complex. In 1776, there were enough people who were willing to stand up to aristocracy. And as I said before, it's our turn. 
Now, if you look at the great social justice movements in our history, such as abolition, such as women's suffrage, third parties were extremely important. Abolition did not emerge from a major party, it emerged from the abolitionist party. Women's suffrage did not emerge from a major political party, it emerged from the women's party. Social security did not emerge from a major party, it emerged from the socialist party. But I say that in complete support of Ryan and Nick in saying that they don't want to think of this as a third party. They want it to be a major party. And I agree with everyone here in saying that if the Democrats don't feel that there's a real alternative to their corporatist agenda, then at this point with everything we've been through, with what happened to Bernie in 16, what happened to Bernie this year, and to be honest, what happened to me? I've been there, I know it from the inside. The Republican party has been so taken over by a corporatist agenda they don't even pretend that they're not. But the Democratic Party is very interesting, isn't it? It sees all the suffering that is created by a corporatist agenda, and it does in ways that it can try to ameliorate the suffering on the periphery. But neither the Democratic Party any more than the Republican Party will actually challenge the underlying forces that make all that suffering inevitable. And so when it came to abolition, people knew it was simply time for the people to take it from here. When it came to women's suffrage, it was women who knew, no, we're gonna to have to step in. When it came to civil rights, Martin Luther King, civil rights movement, it was time for the people to step in. And one more time, it is time for the people to step in. And that's why this party is important. Now I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. I'm definitely going to vote for Joe Biden. And as has been said here before, everybody has to vote their own conscience and other people have expressed their opinion about this race. Some people have said to me, oh, Marianne, you think he's gonna fix anything? No, actually, I don't think he's gonna fix anything, but I think he's going to give us a pause in the action because Donald Trump's policies, the state of this country right now, what Donald Trump has done to this country is Donald Trump holding back. You give him a second term, there will be nothing to hold him back. And I agree with Michelle Obama when she said, oh, you think it can't get any worse? Trust me, it can't. And just like I said a few minutes ago, I think we should all read up on our American history right now. It would be a good idea to read up about Germany in the 1930s and the 1940s. When I think of this convention, the first word that comes up for me is patriotic. You see, it's a great American tradition to push back about over, against overreach by capitalism. That's what the labor unions are. And of course, as part of the trickle down um, hostage taking of this country, there has been an almost decimation of the labor movement in the United States. But that pushback is the most patriotic, most traditionally American thing that we can do. That's why we have labor unions. That's why we have child labor laws. That's why we have antitrust laws. That's why we had Glass-Steagall. You know, everybody talks about how this is a duopoly, but I think in terms of the, the deeper truth of what the duopoly represents, it's that it's a monopoly. It represents something that theoretically we're not for in this country, where a conversation, where an opportunity is so, is so monopolized by someone that there is no room for other voices. And that's why those of us who are real progressives feel at this country like we're politically homeless. Where are we supposed to go? We've been basically told by the Democratic Party, you're not even welcome here. 
And even when people have tried so hard to play within the rules, to play within the system, I know, and you know, what happens to candidates within the Democratic Party at this point in the Democratic Party's history who does not color between the lines. So I think this party is so important. Regardless what happens after the election, regardless what happens after the election, whether people feel in their hearts moved to bore from within, to move from within the system of the Democratic Party, or we feel moved to work very, very hard for this party. I think both are options that, that are meaningful and significant, and everybody, all of us will know in our own hearts after the election, where do we go with that? But I can tell you this, this part, the bravery that Ryan Knight and Nick Grana are showing, I think these guys are going to be talked about a long time from now. There's, this is something that reminds me of the greatest social movements in the history of this country. You know, everybody knows we have to look at the, at the problems in our history. But I think we need to identify the problems, but we also need to identify with the problem solvers. Some people only talk about what's good in this country, and they have no listening to all the terrible things we have to look at. Mass incarceration, slavery. The, the, the horrible, the horrible history of racial injustice. We need an entirely new America. We need to front end our resources in the direction of America's children. We need to not only take a stand against the military industrial complex, we need to proactively wage peace. We have to, as Dr. Kalma said, say no more incremental change when it comes to climate change. We have to be bold and yes, we have to be radical because love is radical and democracy is radical. We have become a country when Abraham Lincoln said that the, that the men died at Gettysburg so that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people would not perish from the earth. It is perishing now, and we all know it. We've become a country and a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. Other generations have said no to that. Other generations have taken a stand. And other generations have course corrected. We've never been perfect. We've never been good all the way in every way, but it is the job, it is the mission of every generation to do our best, to bolster those things in which America gets it right, to protect those places where America gets it right, and to extend the franchise where it needs to be extended. It's been happening, some good things have been happening, just like some terrible things keep happening too. And I agree, it's important what Nick said, just as there is a growing specter of authoritarianism on the planet. There's also a growing, growing impulse towards the kind of freedom, towards a kind of democratic fervor and aspiration of genuine freedom for the human spirit so that people can actualize their God-given potential. When you're living in survival all the time, you don't know, you're living in chronic economic tension. You don't know how you're gonna pay off your college loans. You don't know what will what'll happen if you ever get sick. You don't know how you'll ever send your kids to college. Nobody can live freely. Everybody's in such tension and anxiety. There's a reason for that. And as has been said here before, I'll tell you why, because of policies, because of a rigged system that is built at this point, because of the undue influence of corporate money on our government, our government has become a system of legalized bribery. It is basically a handmaiden to those corporate forces. And it's not gonna stop it until we stop it. And I think at this point, Nick and, and, uh, and Ryan and everybody who has spoken here has an absolute legitimate point we can't look to them to stop it anymore. We have to do it. Other generations have. We need to step in. And I'm proud to be stepping with you. This is big stuff. This is good stuff. 
This is historic stuff. God bless you. God bless America. And can we please now say, God bless the world. Thanks so much. Wonderful being with you. Thank you so much, Marianne, for that amazing speech and for your spiritual leadership and your courage to join us.